There was a teenager named Kevin who lived in the mountains of central Pennsylvania. He had a very unusual job. In the huge forests around his home were uh, two varieties of wild exotic mushrooms that the chefs in the West Coast cities would pay dearly for. In the East Coast city, excuse me. It was hard work, but he made a lot of money. He'd been doing this ever since he was 13, and he would, uh, every year, set a goal, something to buy or purchase. And uh, the first year was a beautiful hunting rifle. He, one year he bought a horse, another year he bought a, um, the motorcycle of his dreams, a CR-125 dirt bike. He was a wise young man. <laughs> the next season came around, and he was 15 going on 16. What does every 15-year-old think about? 15-year-old young man, anyway. Uh, getting his driver's license and buying a car. And he already had one picked out. It was a 1965 Mustang convertible, restorable, that his friend down the road had and was willing to sell to him for $4,000 if he could raise that $4,000 by the end of this next mushroom season. And so he worked harder than ever. He was on track to make enough money for the Mustang when one day something happened that changed everything. He had started the day just about $50 shy of his goal of $4,000, and in his backpack and in the packs on his motorcycle were about $50 worth of mushrooms, and he was on the well-worn trail that led from the forests out to the road, and he saw some mushrooms on the side of the road, got off, bent down to harvest them, and the evening sun glinted off something in front of him behind a bush. He pushed aside the bushes, brushed aside some leaves, and there in front of him was a small outcropping of rock, and in that rock was a thin vein of yellowish gold material. Kevin's heart skipped a beat. He was pretty sure he knew what it was. He took out his hunting knife and started digging down into the ground to see how far that vein went, and it kept going and going. He realized, of course, that if it was gold, he, the only way he could have it was to have the land that it was on. He had permission to harvest mushrooms, not gold. Just moments before, he had no interest in this property. Now, all of a sudden, it was exactly what he wanted. He chipped away a tiny piece of the gold to test it, and he covered it back up, took it home, and it tested positive. It was gold. Kevin was amazed. Hundreds of people, thousands of people had walked down that path, never seen it. He himself had walked down that path many times before, and he had never seen it either. He called his uncle who sold real estate. He said, uh, is that five acres on Black Mountain for sale? And Kevin held his breath. He said, yeah, it is. You want to buy it? Yeah, I do. Why? What about your Mustang? He said, well, things have changed. How much are they asking? $22,000. Kevin's heart sank. He didn't have anywhere near that kind of money. But then his uncle said, you know, they're really... Uh, desperate to sell, they'll take 6000 down and they'll finance the rest themselves. Kevin hung up the phone. His mind was reeling. He began to do the math. He began to calculate. He immediately thought of his Honda, his horse, his hunting rifle, all the things that were his treasures just a few moments before. And he began to do the math. He began to calculate in his mind. The next day, he took all those things, put them up for sale, sold them at ridiculous prices. His friends were amazed, but Kevin showed no signs of regret at parting at all these things that were once his treasures, his life, really. He sold everything, 
The day after the sale, he took the 2,000 that he had made, went to the bank, withdrew the 4,000 that he had in there, and he went to sign the papers so that the land and all the gold on it would become officially his. Now, let me ask you, ask you a question. Do you feel sorry for Kevin that he had to part with all of his treasures? Do you or not? No. No, we don't. Let me ask you this. Do you admire him for his incredible sacrifice of selling his dirt bike and other things? Nothing to admire. Nothing to admire. Pure self-interest. He did the math. Most of you have already figured out that this story is my version of Christ's own parable in Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man had found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. Now, we know this parable is not talking about selling your possessions. It's certainly not teaching us to buy salvation. We know that. From my understanding of it, this parable has one main point. Here it is. God and his kingdom are so valuable that once you see it, once you see it, everything else added together is nothing in comparison and less than nothing. That's the main point. And then there's a corollary point. Getting that treasure brings eternal, intense happiness and pleasure. The Bible is filled with comparisons like this. All throughout the Gospels, Christ urges us to make the same kind of calculation, to do the math, consider, reason, calculate, count the cost. Sometimes he describes it as a choice between going to heaven with, with one arm or going to hell with both. The only conclusion we can come to is, cut it off. If that's how you get to heaven, cut it off. Or he says, you know, if it takes plucking out your eye to get to heaven, pluck it out. And if that really was the way we'd get there, to get to heaven, we'd all be like this. Honestly, we'd pluck it out if that's how you get to heaven. Or he'll say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or sometimes he'll tell a parable about a rich man who kept increasing his wealth so that he had to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. And one day he retired and he kicked back and he said, I can, I can just take it easy now for the rest of my life. And the Lord said, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Sometimes the Lord will say, what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world? Lose his own soul. In all of these parables, Christ is saying to us, do the math. Do the math. Now, notice the two key elements of this parable of the hidden treasure. First of all, he saw something that he wanted so bad that everything else seemed like nothing and less than nothing in comparison. But it wasn't just that. Down through the course of history, many people have been forced to sell their possessions because of circumstances. They very rarely do it with joy. So the second element is this. You turn your back on everything with joy because you know you've made the most incredible deal in the world. Now, I know I'm using the words joy and happiness interchangeably here, and I'll continue to do that in my sermon, because I think that we have sort of constructed a, uh, an artificial meaning of the word happiness and the word joy in Christianity. We say that, well, happiness is sort of a shallow, temporary thing, sort of emotional. Joy is deep, it's abiding, it lasts forever, doesn't depend on emotion. 
And uh, the fact is that, 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 that the English words don't bear that, out that difference. They're actually fairly interchangeable in English. And certainly the, original, the words in the original language don't bear that out. Uh, so it's not a linguistic thing. The reason we make that distinction is that there really is an underlying difference between a fleeting evanescent happiness that's here today and gone tomorrow and a real abiding happiness. But notice I use the word happiness both times. You see, you can have a fleeting joy and you can have an eternal joy. You can have a fleeting temporary happiness or you can have an eternal abiding happiness. The difference isn't in the words. It's in your heart. There is in the Christian life this strange combination of intense happiness and calculated self-sacrifice. You'd think it'd be one way or the other, don't you? And sometimes we preachers are guilty of preaching that it's one way or the, it's one or the other. You have to choose, you know, you can either live for happiness or live for Jesus. <laughs> oh my, just the opposite is true. Once you see the treasure, you see, you understand that you can have both. In fact, in fact, it's have both or have none. It's have both or have none. Once the man saw the treasure in the field in Jesus' parable, the rest was almost automatic. You know, sometimes we say to American Christians, we preachers say to American Christians, especially to, to a young people like you, you're too attached to your things, to your comfort, to your security. But that's not really the problem, is it? The problem is that we haven't yet seen the treasure that would make those things and, and that comfort and that security seem like, what did Paul say? Dung, refuse in comparison. We just haven't seen the treasure yet. We're like the children in C.S. Lewis's illustration who would rather play with mud pies in the filthy alleys of London because they, they don't know what a holiday at the beach is. Oh, young people, do the math. Faculty, staff, do the math. Be a calculating Christian. Ask God to open your eyes to the treasure that is Christ. Say to God, God, it's possible and I'm blind to it. I say that to the Lord often. God, I, 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 think, I've, I think I've glimpsed it, but I'm not sure. Sometimes I get a glimpse, but I want to see it, Lord. I want to see you for all your glory. Be my treasure. The treasure is the most important part of the equation when I say to you this morning to do the math. But there are other important parts, too. I wish I could just stay on the treasure part. I wish I could just spend 30 minutes and tomorrow and the next day just talking about the glories of Christ and his kingdom. But the second, second element to plug into the equation is the shortness of life. You forget to plug that in, and your math is going to be fatally wrong. How long is your life? My life is three days long. I've got one day to live. It helps me when I look at my vapor of a life, to think of it in terms of three periods of time, each about 22, 23, 24 years long. I'm at the sundown of day two. I've got one lap to go, one day to go. In 22 years, I'll be 70. I'm beginning the last day of my life. Three days, young people. Where are you? You're at the sundown, most of you at day one. You've got two days to go. Soon you will start the second to the last day of your life. And you think the first 23 years, 22 years have gone by fast. You don't know what fast is. And that's why scripture piles metaphor on top of simile, on top of word picture, 
on top of parable, to drive into our hearts the realization of the shortness of this life. It uses word pictures like, like fading flower, mist, grass, dew, a fleeting shadow, chaff, smoke. Listen to Job 14.1. He was the first one to make this point. Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and he's cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow. He says, he says you're a fleeting shadow. James 4.14, what is your life? It's a vapor. It's like that fog you get sometimes in the morning. By nine o'clock, it's gone. It appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Moses says that you are like the grass which groweth up. In the morning, it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening, it is cut down and withereth. David, Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field. So he flourishes. The wind passeth over it and it's gone. The place thereof shall know it no more. You're given three days to live, and you're at the sundown of day one. You've got two days left. Don't waste them. Faculty, staff, we've got one day left, half a day left. Let's not waste it. Put that into your equation. And then the third thing to put into your equation is the length of eternity. Satan doesn't just try to blind us to the treasure. That's the main thing. Oh, if, if he can get you not to see the treasure, he's won. But he tries to blind us to the treasure. He tries to blind us, number two, to the shortness of this life. And number three, he tries to blind us to eternity. I mean, eternity has a, has a, has a way of pretty radically tipping the scales. You know what I mean? Uh, you can't even put it into an equation. It's no longer an equation. Scripture doesn't even spend much time describing eternity. How can it? All comparisons break down. But it tells us that our destiny is an eternal destiny. Revelation 22 we shall reign forever and ever. And this is the reality. This is the reality. You have a really, really short life, followed by a really, really long eternity. Do the math. Do the math. How should you then live? Luke 16. Our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, told us in many places how we should live in light of these truths, in light of the treasure, in light of the shortness of life, in light of eternity. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. I love this passage. It has affected me as I reach the later years of my life. And he also, and he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. They used to do this a lot back then. A landowner of, vast, of a vast estate would hire a CEO to take care of everything for him. And the CEO, the steward, had a lot of authority. He called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. So he got fired. Well, not yet, really. He had a day maybe two days, to get all the accounts in order and hand the books in to the boss. A day, or maybe two. Does that sound familiar? What did I just say? We have what? A day, maybe two days left in this life. So it's just like you and me. Let's read verse 3. And then the steward said within himself, or to himself, What shall I do? My Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do. I know what I'll do. When I am put out, so that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. 
So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, how much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, take thy bill, sit down quickly and write 50. 50% discount. And then he said to another, how much owest thou? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, take thy bill and write four score, write 80. Now here's where some commentators go wrong. They try to explain away the steward's actions. They say, well, you know, that was maybe his profit or his commission. He was just giving it back to him, so he had a right to do this. The thing is, that's missing the point. We don't, we don't need to make this guy look good. In the next verse, Jesus said he was unjust, all right? This, this guy's no good. But look, verse 8. The Lord, that is the master of this, of this steward, commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely, shrewdly, And now listen to Jesus' own interpretation of his parable. For the children of this world are in their generation, that is, in their own economy or system, wiser than the children of light, shrewder than the children of light. How was he shrewd? Oh, this is going to resonate with you, young people. Listen, after after having taught you about the shortness of this life, reminded you of the shortness of his life, listen. He had just one day, or maybe two, to do whatever he could to prepare for the next 30 years of his life. And he used every last ounce of his rapidly waning authority and time, his soon-to-be-lost position, to secure his future. So that when he was fired, he would have a whole lot of job offers waiting for him. He was shrewd. He was calculating. He did the math. And now listen to Jesus' own application of this parable. I love this. Verse 9, And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. Now don't stumble over that mammon of unrighteousness. It, it was the term back then for world, what we would call worldly wealth. So he's saying, saying, Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves, that when ye fail, and ye will fail, you got two days to live, when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Who may receive you? Those friends that you made with your worldly wealth and your rapidly fading time. You see, the steward saw that his time was short, his options fewer and fewer, so he maximized, he leveraged his weak position to have a huge impact on the rest of his life. And in the same way, like the steward, our time is running short. Our time is running short. We're in a weak position. You don't have much. What do you have to offer in and of yourself? Like the steward, we can take these last couple days of our lives, maybe the last day or for some of us the last few minutes. We can take these average abilities and gifts and we can leverage them. We can leverage them for incredible eternal results and rewards. That's one reason I'm in Cambodia. I am, I am so average in my gifts, my abilities, my education, my brains. I could be the patron saint of averageness. I told my family the other day, I am relentlessly average. Back here in the States, I'm a dime a dozen. But in Cambodia, it's a different story. I can, listen, I've got one day left. I'm going to be where I can leverage my average abilities, my shrinking time to accomplish amazing things for God, for His glory, through His power. I'm a calculating Christian. I've done the math. I want God to receive the glory from thousands of souls 
captured, rescued from Satan. I want, to, I want thousands to greet me on that day when I go home too. You know, you can start when you're young. You don't have to wait till you're old, like me. I have a friend back in the South. When he was just 15, he started supporting us. I got a letter out in Cambodia saying this guy was supporting us at $10 a month. I said to my wife, isn't this guy a teenager? She goes, yeah. I called my kids. I said, this is the smartest teenager in the world. They said, why, Dad? So he figured it out. I mean, for one thing, he, he, he knows what, what's eternal and what's not. But he also knows that you don't wait till you're rich to give. I mean, then you got to give a whole lot for it to count for anything. You give when you're poor and it has huge dividends and rewards. It's very unusual the way God counts things in heaven. Do the math. Be calculating like my friend. Now he's 22. He's starting. It's the sunrise of the second day of his life. Pretty soon that second day will be over and the third day if God gives it to him. And when he dies, thousands will line up to welcome him and say, thank you, I'm here because of you. I believe that with all my heart. Be shrewd, be calculating, do the math. As I said at the beginning, if you're going to do the math, you need to put every variable into the equation. And now we come to number four, suffering. Suffering with Christ. Besides the treasure and the shortness of this life and the length of eternity, there's suffering. Romans 8, 17 says, you will reign with Christ if, if you suffer with him. If you suffer with him, and this brings us to John 12, 23. Some Grecian Jews wanted to come meet Jesus Christ. It's possible that as the Lord saw their hearts, he saw that they misunderstood Messiah's purpose in coming. So they came and they said, we want to see the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is going to explain to them what glory really is. Verse 23, some, uh, and Jesus answered them saying, John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Yes, finally, I bet some of the, I can just hear some of the disciples' thoughts. Finally, he's going to reveal his glory. Finally, he's going to show everybody who he is. Finally, he's going to sit on his throne. And by the way, I hope I get one of the seats on the left or on the right. Those were the thoughts of the disciples we know from other passages during even those last few days of Christ's life. But now listen to what the Lord Jesus says about glory. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. A lot of Christians in America don't want to die. They don't want to die. I've had people tell me, you know, I couldn't live where you live, J.D. I couldn't stand the bugs. Oh, that is bad math. I've had people tell me, you know, I know I should be going to the nursing home and, 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 and visit these old people, but you know, it just discourages me so much when I go. Oh, that's terrible math. Someday they will regret having been driven by their fears like that. It is the glory of that solitary seed in your hand. It is the glory of a solitary seed to go into the ground and die, and by dying produce much fruit. It's the glory of a solitary Christian to give the, the lonely seed of your life to God and let him plant it so that you will produce much fruit. Look at that seed of corn in your hand. If you can get it out of your pocket or wherever, wherever you have it, put it in your hand. It's not impressive. 
small, it's wrinkled, it's hard. You can look at it if you want. And listen, unless it goes into the ground and dies, it will remain solitary, alone, hard, wrinkled. I try and go to a care home every week to visit the Lord Jesus there. And uh, I can tell people there who've spent all their lives sort of, sort of insulating themselves from as much discomfort and risk as possible. It shows. It really does. They're all alone. I don't mean physically alone. Everybody in a care home is physically alone. That's why they need you to go visit them. I mean they're alone in their own thoughts, their own complainings, their own bitternesses, their own regrets. I'm afraid that that describes one of my friends there named Margaret. Every time I go visit her, she's complaining about how she's being mistreated. She complains about the food, how terrible it is, how terrible this is, that is. It's discouraging to go visit her. And then there's Bert. He's 89. He's in a wheelchair. Physically, he's a lot worse off than Margaret. He's in the same facility as Margaret. But oh, what a difference. I, I, I dictate letters for him. He gets all these letters from people whose lives he's touched. You see, a long time ago, he took the lonely seed of his life and he planted it. He's very musical. And he took all of his talents and gifts and he, and he gave it to the Lord Jesus. And what does the Lord Jesus always do? He plants it. And that's what he did in Bert's life. And I get to dictate letters for him. And in every letter, he says, God is so good to me. I have everything I need. I praise God for his goodness in my life. You want to be a Margaret? Or you want to be a Bert? Starts now. Starts right now by turning your back on the American gods of comfort and safety and security and selfishness. Starts right now. And giving your solitary, wrinkled seed of a life to the Lord Jesus Christ to plant any way he wants, anywhere he wants. Lord, it's yours. But if instead you clutch that sorry little seed of your life, it will remain a single seed when you come to the end of your life. You ever counted the seeds on a ear of corn? I have. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. That's glory. 500 on one ear. This is the glory. This is the glory of a single seed of corn. 500 on one ear on a typical stalk. Two ears, a thousand, one to a thousand. And you plant these thousand, you get a million and then a billion and then a trillion. See, this could be your life if you let God plant your seed. This kind of fruitfulness could be yours. Oh man, if you could see, if you could see the kind of fruitfulness that God has planned for your life, you wouldn't hesitate for a second to say, God, take my life and plant it. But I want to warn you, this going into the ground is hard. Just a few days later, the Lord Jesus Christ was facing this going into the ground himself. He came to the very edge, came right to the door of the particular kind of death that he had to face, becoming sin for us, and his holy soul recoiled in horror from that. He said, oh God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So let's not ever accuse the Lord of not telling us ahead of time that this is not easy. Over and over, he told us, Matthew 7, 13, enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter it. For the gate is small, the way is narrow. This is the, the idea of full of pressure and tribulation that leads to life. And there are few who find it. 
Paul said, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 10, 24, our Lord Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Do not fear them who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Where did that come from? Who put that thought into his mind that, that you, can, you can have glory without suffering? Verse 23, he turned and said to Peter, get thee behind me. Satan, that's Satan's doctrine. The broad, easy way. See, that's what he said to Eve. Take the shortcut. You'll be happy. And he's saying to you, be just a normal Christian. You don't have to be one of these pyrotechnic on fire Christians who, you know, Delta Force Christians, just be like half the people in your church. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That means be willing to die. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. To what? To gain what he cannot lose. You are a fool if you hang on to what you can't keep anyway. And by doing that, forfeit all the joys and pleasures that would have been yours forever. And I want to close with this one final exhortation from the second most famous verse in the Bible, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. All of us are used to seeing this verse as an after-the-fact kind of verse. You know what I mean? Something terrible happens, like some of the difficulties and unexplainable tragedies that have even occurred here this year and this past summer. And Romans 8.28 is a great comfort to us after the fact. But this year, I learned another use for this verse. And I learned it just in time because I need it. I learned to use it, and I want to commend to you to use this verse as not just an after-the-fact kind of verse, but a verse that helps give you courage for the future, that helps give you courage to take new risks for Christ and His glory. Since all things work together for good, since all things work together for good, since you cannot lose, lay everything on the line for the glory of God and for His kingdom. Quit hedging your bets. You can't lose. The Lord Jesus said, Nothing by, shall by any means harm you. He said in another place, not a hair of your head will be touched. You say, yeah, we'll tell that to Graham Staines. You remember Graham Staines? Who was burned to death in his car in southern India, along with his 10-year-old son, Philip, and his 8-year-old son, Timothy, burned alive in their car. Does all things include that? All things means... All things. Amen? All things means all things. God worked that heinous crime out for his eternal good and for the eternal good 
of Graham and Philip and Timothy and Graham's widow Gladys and their young daughter. Just as he turned the worst crime in all of history, the crucifixion, into the greatest act of rescue in the history of the world. Jesus promised in Romans 8.28 that all things would work together for good for Graham Staines and his family. And that promise came true. The three of them were immortal until their day came. And it was not a mob of crazed Hindus who killed them. God took them home. Not a hair of their head perished. His going to India was a calculated move. Long before he ever went to India, he thought it all out. He went to India to take care of lepers, to, to, to bandage their, their wounds, to preach the gospel to them. He had done the math, and you know what? He won. He won. Looking at Romans 8.28 in this new way is not just theory for me. Our family goes back to Cambodia to face what is probably, the well, without a doubt, the greatest physical risk that we've ever faced. When we first went out, we were worried about uh, diseases like malaria and, and uh, dengue fever. These are deadly diseases. Uh, hepatitis, they have about a 2 or 3% death rate. But now we face avian flu, and we're at the epicenter of it. We live right where it started. And the death rate, the fatality rate for avian flu, bird flu, is 50%. That means if our family gets it, the six of us who are going back, I'll leave three buried in Cambodia. I'm not trying to be dramatic. You've got to put everything into the equation. We are persuaded that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glories of the life to come. We are convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How's your math? Have you seen the treasure yet? Have you glimpsed it? Do you believe that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glories that will someday be revealed in us. Do you really believe that? I want to urge you, first of all, those of you who are soon to retire, like me, maybe you got one lap or half a lap to run, maybe you're right at the, right at the end, I, I urge you to stiff arm the American retirement dream of just sitting around and doing nothing and chasing golf balls and doing cross-stitch, right? Show us how to retire. God's going to let you retire with a little bit of an income so that you can continue to devote your time to full-time Christian service, visiting widows and orphans in their affliction, going to South Africa to take care of AIDS orphans, going to China to win people to Christ and teach English. Show us how to retire. Show us younger ones how to retire. How do Christians retire? Go down kicking. And then, young people, you've got two days left to live. You've got two days. God wants some of you to go to other parts of the world. God wants a lot of you to go to other parts of the world, to be business people, missionaries, teachers. Forget about national boundaries. You don't need some special call from God to, to cross some border that God never even made himself. The whole world is yours. The Bible says you are heirs of the world. I mean, thinking of things with these natu na national boundaries is just so 19th century. We're in the 21st century now. 
Think globally. It's all yours. You can go anywhere you want. God will open the doors for you. God wants others of you to stay here and serve God here. And make money, yeah. And live on less and less of it so that more and more of it can be invested to, to send out these missionaries and support these tent makers and help these AIDS orphans. Live a life that just exposes the bankruptcy of the American dream. Be calculating Christians. And finally, welcome the hardship that comes your way. Don't see hardship as an, an inevitable byproduct of living for Christ. No, it is the God-ordained means to make you fruitful. It's when we are weak that he is strong. Your loving older brother is calling you to suffer with him so that forever and ever and ever you will have the intense happiness and pleasure of reigning with him. Let's bow for prayer. You have that little seed of corn in your hand. I'd like you, if you want to, to hold it in front of you on your lap with your palm open as a sign to God, as a sign to God that you want him to take your life and plant it anywhere he chooses. You trust him. Just hold it there in the palm of your hand as we pray. Trust him with the tiny seed of your life, young people. You don't just want to stay a solitary seed. Don't be afraid. Trust the Lord Jesus who died for you. 